here we all are on Sunday, the 9th of October, Stooge's Farm. This is the final morning session of our session. Our platypus session. Just got two or three themes that we'll weave together for this final guided meditation or guided contemplation. I sometimes use those words interchangeably. So sometimes when I'm giving a guided meditation, it's more like a guided contemplation. So our session is rapidly drawing to its conclusion. Time swiftly passes. So on that theme, I thought I'd read you out one of my favorite WB Yeats poems. I fell in love with this poem when I was, went back to the UK after high school in 1975, just before Christmas. And I went to visit Stratford-upon-Avon and went into an old, the ye old bookshop in Stratford-upon-Avon and came across the, across the collected poetry of WB, WB Yeats. And I fell in love with this poem. And I have contemplated it over the years. It's called The Wild Swans at Cool by William Butler Yeats. The trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors the still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw before I had well finished all suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in great broken rings upon the clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell beats of the wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, Lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the earth. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wonder where they will attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. 
Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool? Delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away. So I think that poem captures very nicely a Japanese word that's often associated with Zen called Mujo, M-U-J-O. We don't quite have a word for it in English, but it's, it's that sense of basic okayness with impermanence, the sense of the cherry blossoms falling, the transience of life, this sort of mixture of sweetness and sadness, knowing that in a way, without transience, there could be no beauty. I think the poem catches very nicely the sense of what it is to be a human being reflecting on one's life, reflecting on one's aging process and looking at this nature scene of the swans that always just seem to be just as they are. It may well be obviously that swans like trees do grow old and die. But it's unlikely that trees and swans have this capacity as we do to reflect upon them. Swans and trees are, we can might guess, always just being in this present moment. So it captures the, the two-faced quality of human life or the, the sense of duration, the sense of a past, so three phases really, the sense of the past, the immediacy which is just ungraspable of the present and the future that we as human beings inhabit, which brings up these, this capacity to experience this quality of feeling called mujo. This moment will never be again. This session will never be again. We are always aware of that. And as we are traveling home, this will all become a memory. hope it will be a good memory. Memory of mutual friendship in the Dharma, mutual exploration in dialogue of the Dharma, 
mutual caring for each other, mutual appreciation of the beauty of the natural surroundings in which we are dwelling here. There is a definite aesthetic quality in Zen Buddhism which we wish to maintain in our practice even though our forms change. I don't think uh, a Japanese kitchen would be so ordered as the kitchen is here. So we adapt to our circumstances but we still appreciate each moment, each object in its place. So the sweetness of transience. the soreness of our hearts, the nostalgia that we may at times experience for when we were 19 years old, experiencing a lot of emotions for the first time, reading books we had never read, read before, poems we've never read before. But that quality of freshness I really do believe our practice, our Zazen practice, can help us to maintain that freshness and immediacy of experience. So, in a way, maybe because of our practice, our hearts don't have to necessarily grow old in the sense of not being able to experience the, the newness or the freshness or the immediacy. Every time we see a swan, it's a new experience. Every time we get excited about seeing a platypus, it's a new experience. The many forms in which reality takes to manifest and greet us and say hello. So that's one of the themes that we run through our session, our Zen practice. And we can, great tradition, art, whether it's poetry or the visual arts, music, all part of our tradition. We're so blessed to have so many artists among us in our Sangha. Like we're all artists in one way or another. And we can express, and I hope you do express these subtle insights and realizations, these enlightening events and moments along the way, the experience of beauty. 
the wonder of being here. We don't have to go to Japan, although it would be lovely to go to Japan to watch the cherry blossoms falling. Transience is all around us. Beauty is all around us. bodies and minds are wonderful, ever-present teachings of transience. Just moving on to another thing to contemplate. This is a, um, a brief excerpt from a poem written many, many years ago by Homer called the Odyssey. Here, after many hardships, endless wanderings, after 20 years, I have come home at last. So coming home is a thing we often touch on in our practice. I often start our Tuesday morning meditations with a welcome home. The epic tales in literature, there and back again. A quest adventure. 
we set out on our journey and we find ourselves where we began, but this time we appreciate where we began because the journey has transformed us. We have a new, new, new eyes, new ears. And Rick Ibsen's play, Peer Gint, is another example of that kind of narrative where Peer Gint goes off in search of not quite sure what, like we all do, whether it's wealth, whether it's the perfect partner, whether it's adventures. And finally comes back to where he, the little village in the mountains where he started from back to his beloved Solvig, who he left behind, whatever she represents. In the same way, many of us have read Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, another fictional account of going through many adventures in search of meaning, in search of truth, in search of reality. And finally, settling by the river, ferrying people across. at home in the world, at home with being with other people in the world and being of service to them. Content with the ordinary life of a ferryman. We have spoken about how enlightenment can be seen as becoming more fully ordinary, more fully human. What do we mean by that? When we return to our Zazen practice every morning, as I'm sure you all do, it's, I think, very good to think about it as coming home. Because wherever we go, this body and mind goes with us. So in a way, this body this mind is our home. 
in many ways the transformation that occurs from being a sentient being to being a Buddha is simply becoming being at home with this body and mind, with all its aches and pains and pleasures, its funny tummies, its funny toes, its beautiful wrinkles, its layers of tummy fat. <laughs> <laughs> All sign of being at home as a Buddha body. Not trying to fix it or shape it. Being careful to care for it. Being careful to do our best to give it nutritious food healthy food. Looking after our minds, reading good, healthy texts, being careful what we consume on TV. And our zazen practice is just a coming home. We're just sitting in stillness and silence, requiring nothing else. We're just performing, just being totally complete in this moment. So that we can meet the next moment with a sense of equanimity or okayness, with a sense of care. Compassion's way, the word karuna can be translated as care rather than compassion. As we become more and more at home with our body, mind, ourself. As I said earlier on, it's also indivisible from the world in which we, we are in. So that sense of being at home in our body, mind includes the world we find ourselves in. Dwellings are a very good example of that. Um, in my lifetime, I haven't been, I've been more nomadic. The circumstances of my life, maybe not necessarily by choice, but um, by circumstance. Um, I think I could have settled in one place. 
But um, whether we're nomadic or whether we settle, it doesn't really matter. Like if you're settled in one place for many years, you know, the dwelling becomes a place to feel at home, where you care and tend for it. You know, because I've worked in mental health for many years, you, when someone doesn't feel at home in their body-mind, it's expressed in the dwelling in which they live. When people are traumatized and alienated, often the dwellings reflect that as well. Someone who is at home in the body and mind cares for themselves, naturally the gardens that they're custodians of at the time of them. We can still care for the dwelling we're renting. It's still our living place, our dwelling. We care for it just as much because that's where we live. It doesn't really matter who owns it. It's just really caring in, for ourselves. Caring for our dwelling is caring for ourselves. And then we've talked about how as we mature in our practice and the circle of self-care begins to expand. So initially, it's all about us. And hopefully we start to care for our partner if we're partnered. If we have children, we care for them, hopefully. And hopefully the sense of being at home in the world and dwelling at home in the world extends to the country in which we live in the sense of these hills and rivers. One of the practices that um, Barry's Sangha used to do sometimes would be to go for a walk uh, out through out, out from the zendo and down and around the streets just picking up rubbish and putting it in the bin uh, the sense in which we just care where we live as a community in the same way we care for the places in which we dwell. And again, when people are not at home in their bodies and minds, when they're suffering, when they're in conflict, when they're depressed, when they're angry, violent, you see how So in a way, we 
could sometimes think of our practices homemaking. The important principle of expanding that circle of inclusiveness. There are lovely traditions in indigenous cultures that have ritualized ways of showing hospitality to strangers. In the Maori culture in New Zealand, the Marae, it's kind of like a very big welcoming ceremony. And there's the sharing of songs first, like songs of the mountains and rivers where And then the sharing, very important ritual of creating a friendship with a stranger. In a way, in our Sangha, we all start off as strangers to each other. And being on Seishin is very nice because we can share meals together as well. Whether we share the meals in silence or whether we talk, there's still something intimate about sharing and dwelling with each other, sharing our food with each other, sharing the tasks of looking after the dwelling, sharing the same bathroom, sharing the same toilet. It's very, very intimate. And one of the good things I think about a session like this is we can experience that. We often don't get a chance to experience that. We're often living fairly, you know, our own lives in our own places. So it's very rare, unless we live on a commune, that we come together. And, you know, a lot of commune experiments haven't been that successful. So, you know, maybe one of the ways in which we get to experience that sense of community is these temporary communal coming togethers like this on session. So that's an important part of session. It's not just the sitting, listening to Dharma talk, but just living with each other in a, in a very close proximity. It's a very important part of it. And again, I'd just like to thank our host, Richard Thomas, for giving us this opportunity to live together like this for a few days. It's been, in a way, more intimate than Yarrawarra, in a sense. Um, and I've enjoyed that very much. never ceases to amaze me how we come together like this. To maintain this, this practice in our own way, 
that's a practice which has been handed down to us now for many hundreds of years. It's the, the closest I've really ever gotten to experiencing some kind of ancestry. Finally, I just wanted to make one real comment on something which is a little bit more abstract, but it struck me as being quite important. And um, yesterday's guided meditation, which wasn't recorded because I forgot to plug the laptop in and the battery ran out. I was quoted the first two lines of Hakuin Zenji's song of Zazen have always kind of fascinated me. And I kind of like came to a, a new understanding of them. So all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. Now, I have talked to you about the distinction that we can make, which begins with Aristotle, between being and beings. So sentient beings. And uh, being is mysterious. It's all of this, it's the cosmos. It's where we come from. We are dependent on being for our existence, fleeting as it is. But the realization I came to is that being is not dependent upon us. Which then helped me to interpret that two lines differently in a more kind of humanistic way. The one thing I've always liked and appreciated about Buddhism, although it varies and depending on what Buddhist teacher or culture you're in, Siddhartha was an ordinary person, not a divine being. So, all beings by nature are Buddha. Let's just simplify it and talk that all human beings by nature are Buddha. As ice by nature is water. So apart from beings, no Buddha, right? So 
the key here is Buddha is not independent of human being. Buddha is just a human being which is awake. That's all it is. It's not something mystical or divine out of our reach. We are Buddha when we are awake. No Buddha without us. So that's the kind of responsibility, that's the lamp that we carry when you read in Zen Buddhism, the transmission of the lamp, right? From one generation to the next. That's the lamp, as in, you know, in the Olympic Games where they carry the torch, we have to pass, keep that torch lit and pass it on from one generation to the next. That's our, that's our calling. That's what we're called to do, to keep the light of Buddha light. There's no guarantee that it won't go out. So that's our awesome responsibility that I'll leave you with. Thank you. I'll just, just turn off the recording.